0: Welcome to the show, everybody. This is Eurodell University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski. We're going to talk to Jeff about Bitcoin and whether or not it's going to the moon. How much is it worth? No, I'm, I'm teasing Jeff. We're going to talk about digital assets, digital finance, cryptocurrencies, and how they might maybe be a replacement, appendage, a supplement, part of the new system, a new monetary order to the euro dollar system that we exist in right now we're going to talk about unit of account exchange medium of exchange you a value is it a store of value we're going to talk about all those things as well as maybe misconceptions about what bitcoin is worth how it's all conflating right jeff cuz that's part of the problem right you like what it's about but if you say not quite yet, then people think you you don't like it. But it's really because you're concerned about the price. Is that right?
1: Yeah. If we look at digital currencies, cryptocurrencies, digital technology, Bitcoin, all those things, we lump them together, which Bitcoin maximalists hate. We look at the digital currency space just from a high level overview. I think there's tremendous promise, and it's not just tremendous problem in and of itself. Tremendous problem because digital technology and innovation are feeling a need that is badly needed. It's something that we, I mean, the euro dollar system is malfunctioning because what that means is it has become inelastic, not enough money for a global economy to grow in the way that we need it to, we desperately need it to. It has been inelastic for almost 15 years now, all sorts of social, political, economic, financial consequences. So the reserve currency that the world actually uses for uh, its financial operations is inelastic, which means, historically speaking, that has always opened the door for some form of competing currency structure to try to, if not fill that void with some elasticity of its own, maybe if it does it well enough to supplant the current regime and actually take over from there. So the euro dollar has opened the door for something to provide some monetary
0: elasticity that is badly needed around the world people may be surprised to learn that the euro dollar is not a store of value right you can tell us about that what is euro bonds tell us about that because that's where maybe crypto is not a store of value right now it's too volatile but we don't need it to be that at the moment right now we're looking for something else we're looking for a medium of exchange in a Unit of account. But before we get there, your thoughts about store of value, the euro dollar system we're trying to replace, as well as crypto store of value.
1: Well, it used to be uh, money itself could be a store of value because it it was, you know, there's three functions to, to any monetary system it's medium of exchange, unit of account, as well as store of value. So, you know, you don't just have to barter goods between each other or trade your labor for goods or something like that. You have this medium of exchange that also functions as a store of value because if you work on one day and you get paid in some monetary form, you want to hold that monetary form over a period of time. You want it to hold its value. That's not really what the euro dollar system was about. This is a whole prolonged discussion. So we'll just go you know, over the you know, briefly through it. Essentially, the euro dollar banks had no interest in store of value. They wanted just simply a medium of exchange in a fictional ghost money unit of account, a fictive currency. So what happened was they essentially farmed out the store of value function to financial markets. So if you want to trade through the euro dollar system, medium exchange, the banking system could do that for you. If you're interested in holding, quote unquote, euro dollars for a period of time, you convert those short term medium exchange counts or balances or whatever instruments into, say, a euro bond or some other financial security that you could hold on to for a period of time. And then you would liquidate it and you go back into the medium exchange. So it was a sort of a seamless marketplace between different parts which did different things so the euro dollar medium of exchange unit of account euro bonds and financial securities more store of value the repo market kind of on a bridge to divide there we can follow these rabbit hole we can follow go down these rabbit holes a long ways but suffice to say the euro dollar system itself
0: medium of exchange unit of account medium of exchange so i do not want to exchange a service for a good or something like that so i need a tool which we can both agree on That will facilitate the exchange of goods and services. Okay, medium of exchange. Unit of account is always something sort of uh, confusing for me. But tell me if you like this analogy, Jeff. It's like a measurement, right? A unit of account, inches, miles, time. That's what the unit of account is. This good or service is worth this much or this, this distance is this many units of account, inches. Except that we don't exchange inches. We don't exchange seconds. That's what we need money for to also be a medium of exchange. That's how I always keep the two concepts separate in my mind, Jeff. Do you have a better way to explain it to our audience?
1: No, no, not at all. And I would all I would add is that in the reserve currency role, the unit of account is probably, it's even more important than maybe you realize because it's not just measuring our goods against ourselves and our own internal dynamic. It's also how Various systems around the world can measure themselves against each other. You know, the example of you know, importing goods from Japan into Sweden, intermediating through the U.S. dollar in the euro dollar system means the euro dollar is not just the medium of exchange. It's also the unit of count so that we can price, you know, Swedish demand for Japanese goods in a single place or in a single method that is applicable to both areas. So global reserve currencies
0: play an enormously important role for that reason, too. Let us talk about now hard money. Many people say that cryptocurrencies can be hard money. Bitcoin famously only has 21 million that are ever going to be created. Gold is another hard currency that you just can't create out of thin air. And Jeff, you and I, we loved, loved it. We loved that idea, didn't we? When we were younger, but now we're deep into our early, middle 40s, right? So we're old men, wise beyond our years now. And you can explain why you're a little bit uh, squishy now about uh, having a hard, fixed currency. But the best example that I heard recently was by Russell Napier, where he made the point that basically it doesn't work in democracies where everyone is voting because most people are in debt and it works against them. It works against labor if you have a hard currency whenever a recession or deflationary potential comes along. So that's why we delinked hard money just at the exact same moment when most of the population was allowed to vote, women specifically. So it works in places where you can, where you don't have people making the decision. And a great example is Hong Kong, the currency board. Hard decisions are made And no one's voting on it. It's just an elite group of individuals. But when you allow everyone to vote on it, it sounds wonderful. But eventually you're in a recession or a depression and you are up for election as a politician. And you're told, well, if you'd like to keep your seat, you're going to have to expand the money supply. So most of us can go back to work because we're the ones voting. What do you think, Jeff?
1: I think that's part of it. But really, the, the problem in the hard money system, you're right. There is a romantic ideal that's attractive and alluring. It's that basically theoretically speaking, it's an elegant solution to an ages old problem, which is whoever controls the money or issues the money always wants to inflate it because it benefits them. You know, the Austrians talk about contillion effects for a reason because they're very real. If you're the one that's closest to the supply of money as it expands, you get the greatest benefit from it. And so the hard money system was essentially designed so that that couldn't happen or if it started to happen, there was a check and a balance on that inflationary currency because if you owned gold or you owned a bank liability, paper liability that was convertible into real money gold, you could then check that inflationary currency by removing, physically removing the money from the banking system or the government or whoever else. And by removing hard money, you would move the basis for inflationary currency. So theoretically, that's the real allure to a gold-based system or any other commodity money system is the idea that push comes to shove. You don't like what's happening in the currency. You don't like what's happening in the financial system. Take your money out and you're completely sheltered from it, not just in terms of financial existence or financial considerations, but also in the real world. You have a physical token that's in your possession. It's buried in your backyard or in your local vault or something like that. It's great as an ideal, it's great in theory, but in practice what happens, going back to what Mr. Napier was talking about, what you were just talking about, hard money tends to pool, and it tends to pool at the top, which means the wealthiest in society, which they're not the laborers, they're not the regular voters, that's always a problem, not just in terms of the political dynamic, but more importantly in terms of deflationary currency hoarding, which inevitably leads to the worst of the worst case for everybody, which is depression. So as much as we like the romantic allure of being able to check the banking system through this hard money arrangement, it tends to break down in the worst possible way. And historically speaking, it did so with alarming frequency. So as much as we like the idea of a hard money system, in practice, it's an
0: utter mess. Who bears the brunt during a deflationary monetary event, during a depression? Is it labor or capital? It's usually labor, and labor gets the worst
1: end of it, which only makes the political situation that much more unpalatable. So not only do you have inequality, you also have the bottom, you know, the laborer who doesn't have access to money anyway, gets the short end of the stick on top, which is a recipe for chaotic social and political changes, as well as economic depression. But let's not, you know, it's not great for the wealthy either, because usually in the transition period of deflationary currency, quite a few wealthy people get wiped out too. So it's a mess for everybody. It's really the worst case because there's no shelter from it. You know, it's hard to see how
0: it ends up in any other way than too frequent messes. Yes. And somebody had the crazy idea of giving all these laborers voting rights so that yes to your point everyone suffers except there's more laborers voting and that's to the point that you know this the hard money i don't know if it'll work or if it's even humane during these depressionary deflationary moments although yes i love the romanticized individual example like for me yes i have the gold the silver coins locked away and i'll be fine but on a broad scale, it doesn't work. That's why we need someone in between the hard money and the, the Fed. No, no. <laughs> so fine, but if it's the Fed. No, but
1: that's where the Fed came from. Because what happened in the certainly, you know, 1907 example, J.P. Morgan was the one who didn't suffer the deflationary consequences of the panic of 1907 and said, I'll step in and provide elasticity where nobody else will. Everybody was hoarding hard money in 1907. JP Morgan, along with others, they went through the New York Clearinghouse and they said, we'll provide liquidity and see what happens when you have a more elastic currency. You can actually avoid the depression because there was no depression of 1908, even though there was a deflationary panic of 1907. So somebody got the bright idea because this was in practice in Europe that, oh, the US just needed a central bank, a public utility, whose job it is, is to make sure the US currency is elastic enough that we can avoid the situation, this pooling and hoarding of money that always arises with a hard money standard. Of course, we know the problem with that is 1929. We have the Fed and it's, you know, only it's the middle part of a second decade in existence. And what happens? The worst of the worst of the worst depressions and results in the US economic history or world economic history, Because the Fed, again, romantic ideal, public utility, elasticity for reasons that are in the public interest, didn't work so well in practice either. So the idea is good,
0: it's sound, but in practice, it doesn't work very well in either case. So it's intermediation that we need. We need someone or some system in between to determine where this currency is needed the elasticity the supply there's demand it's reasonable demand it's economic demand let's step in let's provide it and that would be the private banking system that's what they're supposed to be doing right jeff that's their classic role some form of specialist right even in a hard money system where
1: rich people are saving gold for example they have it in a vault they might get a knock on their door from a Wall Street banker who says, I have a really good investment for you. Let me take some of your money and invest. That's intermediation. It's taking money that's on the sidelines or would be on the sidelines and putting it to work doing something productive. Now, the, the whole thing is in that word productive because who knows what's productive today from that? You know, what is what might seem like a really good, sound, prudent investment for me might actually turn out to be a horrible, bad idea. And so intermediation as a wide, economy-wide or financial system-wide function is really about how do we get you know, money to be moved around from where it is or where it isn't to where it should be? How do we match the supply of money and currency with a legitimate, productive demand for it? No intermediation function is ever going to be 100% perfect. There's always going to be mistakes. There's always going to be bad investments. There's always going to be losses and things like that. But an intermediation or an intermediate a system of intermediaries that works well enough will by and large have more successes than failures, which leads to money circulating robustly and efficiently, which should create the best economic case, which is sustainable, widespread economic advance. So
0: intermediation is a huge part of making sure money circulates in the way it needs to. Well, there was a funny thing that happened on the way to the Colosseum. The Euro dollar system combined money creation creating gold out of thin air with intermediation and that's the system we had been living in and it was working just fine for most of that time period all the way until <laughs>
1: was it <laughs> reasonably well that's enough. part of the story too right you're right the, the euro dollar essentially we have the intermediaries which are by and large these large banks it's different in, you know Europe was, is more heavily reliant on banks than the U.S. U.S. Has, U.S. More, has more of a robust bond market, but still it's heavily banked. But either way, intermediation was largely left to the banking system, especially these commercial banks or investment banks, which, you know, that's what they did. In the euro dollar arrangement, we took the money creation function away from national stores of gold and gold exchange and gave it to these intermediaries. So essentially, we combined money creation with intermediation. And the money creation was because the euro dollar is a reserveless system. So there's no reserves of gold. There's no reserves of Federal Reserve notes. It's an entirely ledger money, fictive currency, un- money of account system where we're just keeping track, not on paper, but as, is, is, you know, computer screens. So we have the ability of banks to create money at the same time they're supposed to intermediate. You can understand where this is going to go. And it went there really quickly because not long after the Eurodollar rose to ascendancy, We had this thing called the great inflation, which was exactly the thing that hard money uh, proponents said we shouldn't be doing. We shouldn't be allowing unfettered money creation because it will lead to inflationary currency, as it did. So money creation combined with intermediation, what ends up happening is exactly the historical case. The intermediation gets set aside and money
0: creation goes crazy. It went crazy. And then we experienced the... Half the world fell into depression, according to my measurement of depression. All of Latin America, all of Africa, uh, many, I don't know, eight out of the 10 major banks in the United States were insolvent. And so you can see how we stopped the great inflation, how we had a pause in this monetary creation out of thin air. But come the 1990s, balance sheets were reconciled. We had the Brady Bills the end of the Cold War, it all aligned for a perfect takeoff for money creation in the banking system, intermediation in the banking system until we reached August 9th, 2007. We've already discussed that many times. And now we've got a system where we've got money creation still with the private banks, but they don't want to do the intermediation part. So we're stuck and we have been for 15 years Is that right, Jeff? And how do we get to cryptocurrency from there? How do we segue from there?
1: Yeah, so we had money creation, overwhelming intermediation in the pre-crisis period, which meant that since we can create money, we just throw it at anybody. It doesn't matter if it's a good idea, bad idea, or everything in between, because we'll just we can create money out of thin air. And it's, you know, a bit of recency bias and confirmation bias creeps into it. As long as it doesn't seem to be going wrong, we throw more money at bad ideas because we have no constraint on the money creation. And intermediation, who needs to intermediate when you just throw money at everybody? There's no reason to, to discern between this project and that project or this idea and that idea. We just give everybody money. And so that's how you end up with subprime mortgages and ninja loans, really awful corporate credit and euro bond issuance around the rest of the world. It wasn't just a real estate bubble in the United States. It was really a credit-fueled bubble everywhere around the world because there was no intermediation. It had been overwhelmed by money creation, as you pointed out, Emil, for the second time. And so what happened in the 2008 crisis, not getting into the details behind that, was essentially the money creation's part of the equation got impaired. And so the pendulum swung in the exact opposite direction, which left intermediation in the same place. Except now, banks said, since we're not going to create money, there's still no point in doing intermediation because we're only going to just buy the most safest and liquid investments. We're only going to lend, we're not going to lend, we're only going to buy the liquid bonds and lend to those that we think are the the safest. We're not going to take a whole lot of risks here. So there's no intermediation on this side of the crisis either, because the money creation function and intermediation are still intertwined because nothing has really changed so far as the fundamental basis for money and credit around the world. QE didn't change that. The Federal Reserve, the ECB, none of the monetary policies have done anything about this. They essentially fooled the public into believing that we could go back to 2005 again, just without all the subprime mortgages, when in fact that was never possible. So the underlying problem, which is intermediation and this you know, overwhelmed by money creation so that intermediation doesn't happen has left the entire global economy without either money or intermediation, which means governments can borrow all they want because they're perceived as safe and liquid, but businesses, you know,
0: especially the small and medium-sized businesses, they couldn't get a loan to save their life. In your article, The Monetary Answer, Undoing the Biggest Money Mistake of the Past that you posted at Alhambra Investments, on the 22nd of March, 2022, you write that the high-level answer is to back out the money creation function From the intermediation function, you note that this doesn't necessarily mean we have to go back to where we were intermediating some exogenous money, gold or physical Federal Reserve notes or Bitcoin, but it doesn't necessarily preclude that option either. Then you segue to something called algorithmic stablecoins. And at that point, I don't know what's happening anymore, Jeff. You'll have to Guide me and the audience. I bet you part of the audience knows exactly what you're talking about. But now I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. So intermediation
1: works better. Remember, I mean, intermediation is a is a process of assigning credit or even even money on the basis of what looks like the most productive. So if we have intermediaries that are very good about evaluating financial potential, then that helps the economy because more things are going to work out than they're not going to work out. Bad ideas don't get credit. Good ideas do. The economy moves forward, but intermediaries work best when they are disciplined, when they realize if I make too many mistakes, I'm done, the money gets cut off. And that's really why combining those two functions was so stupid, was because if you if you have the money creation function, you realize you'll never get cut off. Therefore, you lack discipline. And so you're just going to throw money at everything. And that's really what happened. So I think in separating the money creation function, re-separating it from intermediation, you instill a level of discipline into intermediaries that says, you got to get more right than wrong or you're done. You're out of business. We're cutting you off of money. You get nothing. And the way that that happens, can we go back to a gold standard? As much as I might like to, and I think a lot of people would, it's just not practical. And people in the 21st century are not going to carry around gold and silver coins and they're more silver than gold, but more, they're not going to carry around hard money coins in their pocket. It's just We're not going to, and unless you're willing to go back to the classical gold standard and all the way to where we're carrying coins in our pocket, there's really no point in doing it. So, how do we get the best parts, you know, the convertibility, the check and balance on the financial system, discipline and intermediaries without going all the way back to a gold system? And I think that's where you get into digital technologies that hold a hell of a lot of promise for doing so obviously there's the bitcoin answer which is you know they claim bitcoin is digital gold and in one sense it's it is it's very limited in the supply it's very predictable in that fashion so that could be a hard money a really hard money solution that would instill some form of discipline on intermediaries i think of things like i mentioned stable coins there's a couple different kinds of stable coins most of them like reserve stable coins are nothing more than money market funds where the purpose is essentially to to keep the value of the coin stable at $1 each coin, using financial assets backing those, or something called an algorithmic stable coin, which really, to me, is very intriguing because I think it's a step in the right direction. What we've really been talking about here the whole time, whether we've been explicit about it or not, is what is the, maybe not the best way, but what is the most realistic, practical way that we can match the supply of money with the demand for it? how can we have intermediation but without crazy money creation? And algorithmic stablecoins, what they do is they have, as the name implies, an algorithm which adjusts the supply of coins to keep the price level steady. So if there's a high demand for these coins, demand goes up, then the algorithm creates more coins. So there's more money for a dynamic change in demand. Conversely, If demand for the coin starts to fall, it removes some of the coins from the circulation. It does this in a very elegant way, mathematical way, that essentially matches the demand demand for coins with supply. The problem there is it's attempting to also do intermediation because anybody that demands coins gets the coins, which is what we're trying to avoid too. So algorithmic stable coins are maybe a money creation function that paired with some form of intermediation points us in the right direction. And I think the problem with the algorithmic stable coins is that their purpose is essentially to keep the price of the the coin stable at one. Where a more sophisticated, maybe euro dollar replacement stable coin system algorithm might be far more broad, looking at different financial characteristics and saying we need to expand the money supply or the coin supply because of this set of factors, or we need to restrict the coin supply because of this set of factors. So you don't have a strict hard money arrangement; you have A somewhat dynamic supply characteristics in the actual coin supply, which I think gets us closer to that middle ground where we're trying to get to where, you know, the demand for money and supply for money, which are always changing. It's a dynamic world. If the demand for money and supply for money can be matched in the most elegant and intelligent fashion, paired with intermediation.
0: That might be the realistic way out of the euro dollar mess. The factors that you mentioned, whether or not or demand is being changed algorithmically. Do you think we can decide what those factors are ahead of time? Or do we also need to leave that somehow open ended and and see what happens in the future? Or are the factors, are we able to determine them now ahead of time?
1: No, and I think that's really the, the challenge that's in front of that's why it's, you know, again, it's easy to lay out what the, you know, the high level overview might be and say, you know, hey, let's just match the supply of money with demand for money. How hard can this be? Well, it's incredibly hard. Human beings have been trying to do it since since there was money and it's been more good than bad. But when we do get into the bad cases, it's, it gets it can get to be really bad. So it's not so easy. And when you think about the details, what are the factors we need to consider? Intermediation, what are the factors we need to consider that for intermediation to work at its best? And it's really hard. What are the financial indications we need to say, we need to look at to design whether or not we're having, is this enough money? Is this too much money? What's What's the range of scenarios? And you're right, Emil, the biggest challenge of all is saying that, okay, these are the rules for the stable coin or the monetary system today. They may not be most applicable tomorrow, and by the time we get 10 years down the road, it may be completely different t- again. So you want to have a pliable enough system that can respond to changes in not just changes in the monetary or financial environment, but in just in the world in general. That can respond to these changes in some fashion where it doesn't lose its base principles or its base ideas. And I think that's really what the euro dollar was. If you really stop and think about what the euro dollar did in the, in the early 1950s. It was a very elegant, dynamic solution to a you know, specific problem that evolved over time. And then as it evolved, it simply just went too far because everybody kind of lost sight of the, the, the guiding principles here and just let the money creation go nuts and overwhelm intermediation. So the details behind doing this, incredibly difficult, incredibly complex, and I don't think we're anywhere close to saying that this
0: is what they are and this is what they should be. We still need to think a hell of a lot about them. I wonder if we could look back to a political similar problem like this. I know I'm biased as an American. I wonder if we could look back to the constitutional convention, because this sounds like what you're describing are all the same things that needed to be done in politics. How best to set up a society that can last for generations, for ages? So maybe we would come up with a, a constitution, an algorithm that identified what you, what the central authorities were not allowed to do. And then we had three distributed power centers that would pass judgment and adjust this algorithm along as time elapsed. Jeff, have I solved this, the problem?
1: I think that's exactly the right idea. And so the way I think you envision that is not, you have competing currency. Right, you have each one as a check upon the other. If if one gets out of characteristic or it goes too far in certain one direction, you have the ability to to smoothly translate into another. So one goes up and the others challenge it, and you know it's always a game of one after another. And so, like you're saying, it's checks and balances. So maybe it's not a single currency or a single digital algorithm. It's one digital algorithm that looks at this, and another currency or coins that looks at this, and Another that looks at this and they're all combining together to give us a better sense of, you know, maintaining some sense and maintaining the ideals that we're trying to trying to replicate. Because money supply and money demand, it sounds really simple, but it's really not. And history as again, history has shown that it's, it's a complete
0: messy affair. I love it. I love it. We need to do a part two. I'm excited. I want to do this, Jeff. You think we well, can I do think it? That's, I think that's the message here that we should end on here. Yes. You look
1: backward at the Eurodollar system and you got plenty of examples about what to do wrong, how crappy it was. You know, It's left us in this 15 years of lack of economic growth on the verge of social and political upheaval everywhere. Lots of bad stuff. But then you look ahead and you look at some of these digital currencies and the digital technologies and people are actually thinking along the lines that we need them to. An algorithmic stablecoin to me can Has the potential to represent a a cosmic leap forward in the direction that we want it to go. The problem that we have is that, as as much as the technology and investments and innovations are taking place underneath, most people are buying these things for all the wrong reasons. They think the Fed has printed money, they think they need to store value to shelter themselves from the dollar's collapse. And so you have this utter disconnect between the fundamental purpose behind these coins, which is elasticity and the prices of them, which is being determined by people looking for a store of value that I don't think they really actually need. And so it's even bigger mess, even bigger challenge. But I think the what really gives us the most hope here is because the Euro dollar system is malfunctioning, that door for elasticity and medium of exchange unit of account will be wide open for a long time. So even if the prices are dislocated currently from the actual technolog- technological promises, of each of these possible innovations that there's we can have there's enough time on a horizon that you know one of these ideas really hits upon something big and it moves substantially in the right direction but we're not anywhere close to those things yet and like i said algorithmic stable coins i think are a good idea but they're so far down you know that's so far from being a realistic alternative that uh it's going to be some time before anything tangible any tangible
0: progress is being made. Well, here's hoping 2024, the 80th anniversary of Bretton Woods, will be when we can start on this and not have to wait too much longer. I don't want to wait until 2034, Jeff, but I have a feeling maybe we will be. All right, Jeff. I, <laughs> Let's I hope enjoy- not. Yeah, no, definitely not. All right. I enjoyed it very much, Jeff. Thank you. Let's talk again soon.
1: All right. Take care, Emil.